Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. All right, now in keeping with my kick on finding new and unique ways to implement permaculture principles and design techniques in ways outside of just land management and natural building, I've got an excellent guest for you today. Now, you probably know Scott Mann as the host of the Permaculture Podcast, the longest-running podcast on permaculture, which has been going strong now for more than seven years. In that time, he has gained remarkable insights from some of the most prominent leaders and changemakers in the regenerative economy. Today, I'll be asking Scott about the changes that he's made in his own lifestyle through his consumer habits, his daily routines and behavior, as well as his interactions with his community and environment. We talk in depth about how abandoning society and moving to the country is often not as effective a form of living regeneratively as you might think. We discuss how to avoid the burnout that can come from too many ethical dilemmas, which arise from living in a destructive social system, and a few of the many steps that you can use to overcome the stress. We also touch on some practical advice on how to make your money count in a consumer environment with so many destructive options. Now, this is a great episode for those of you listeners who love your locations and jobs, but want to take steps towards healthier, more holistic living without a huge upheaval and abandoning everything. So before I give it all away, let me turn things over to Scott Mann. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on today, Oliver. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, I know we've got a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about today. So what do you say we just jump right into the questions? Yeah, let's go ahead and roll with it. Where do you want to begin? Well, if you could start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you first became interested in permaculture, and some of the progression about how you turned it into a profession and a lifestyle. Oh, man, where should I begin? (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot as I consider where we kind of develop our love for the outside world. And so, of course, as a child, I was spending a lot of time out there doing those kinds of things where it was hiking and camping and fishing, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, things like that, that really got me engaged with, you know, the hills and waters here in Appalachia on the mid-Atlantic. And then from there, it was... As I was a bit older, I was an intern at a U.S. Coast Guard facility during my teens, 18, 19, 20. Um, I was originally a computer science major when I was in college the first time through, and so was interning at this facility. And though I know not everyone will remember these days anymore, as we're in 2018 now, there during the late 90s, there was this big concern about Y2K, and that when we would transition from the 20th century into the 20th 
into the 21st whether or not our computer systems and things would work uh, because of date codes and things like that, that we would go to this double zero and then things would be kind of confused. And as I was watching the government in the United States prepare for those kinds of changes, it made me wonder how would just regular people, civilians, prepare for this kind of change if there was some kind of a disaster. And of course, during that time, there was a lot of the like militia movement and the back to the land and survivalist kind of folks who were taking this very like small group and individual dynamic approach to disaster preparedness. And there was just something about that that didn't seem right coming from a large family where, you know, we could go to my grandmother's and there'd be 70 to 100 people for a large cookout that I was all related to. And so I started looking for sustainable solutions to disasters. And that's the around the time that I first encountered Bill Mollison's designer's manual. And there was just a little bit of information about permaculture on the web at that time. And I guess, like so many people, you get some of this information, it's really interesting, and then what you're preparing for doesn't happen. And, you know, Y2K was not any kind of a big blip. And that information that I had found kind of went onto a back shelf. And then it was a number of years later, I was still kind of interested in that idea. That word permaculture carried with me through the years. And it was... Around, oh, I don't know, 2008 or 2009 that I started looking for a permaculture design course, but it was one of those where I always seemed to have the time or the money, but never both. And then finally in 2010, I found a local permaculture design course that was being offered in Lancaster, Pennsylvania by some friends of mine, now friends, at Susquehanna Permaculture. And they were doing this hybrid weekend kind of approach that was really affordable. So I went ahead and took my PDC. And during that time, because of my background in IT over those years and having spent some time as a radio DJ, um, it just kind of made sense that there was this niche to fill. And as a result, I started the Permaculture Podcast, which is now, given the numbers that I hear from other folks, you know, one of the number one or number two podcasts on sustainability or regenerative practices. And as far as I can tell, is also now the longest running show on permaculture with over seven years to date. Marvelous. Yeah, that's remarkable. I think a lot of people can relate to um, those interests and motivations that originally got you into this focus. Now, mm -hmm. you and I both talk a lot about the fact that pretty much all of the solutions, all of the technological fixes and advancements are already existent, already in place that would give anybody the tools and the resources that they need to transition into a regenerative lifestyle or a regenerative production method if that's their business model. However, <laughs> the difficulty runs in in getting the willpower, getting the social momentum to actually implement those changes and empower people to realize that they already have what they need to move forward. And I know this is something that you're very passionate about finding solutions for on the social side of things. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the challenges that come up when it comes to making social shifts in the right direction and bringing up the momentum that's required to move in the right direction. Ooh. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me some big questions, but that's quite a can of worms to get into when we look at those kinds of issues, both from a personal perspective and what we can do as individuals, and then the way that that moves into our larger cultural and social or community shifts. Certainly, and yeah. Let's break it down piece <laughs> by piece then. All right. 
when I think about the individual side, there's this idea that was presented to me by David. There's this idea that was presented to me by Dave Jackie a number of years ago when we were doing a roundtable discussion where we started talking about the difference between the things that we say we care about and then the actions that we actually take, which are, as he referred to them, our espoused values and our governing values. And as I looked at that, I started to think about the things that I would talk about my being my interests in the things that I cared about, and then what was I actually doing? As I was talking about this with Ethan Hughes of the Possibility Alliance, who lives on a gasoline-free and electricity-free farm in Missouri and is really a, a deep example of what it can be to embrace what it is that we value, um, he started talking about the difference between those two things as our integrity gap. And it's not presented to say that we're lacking integrity by there being a distinction between what we say and what we do, but that in the world that we live in, it can be difficult to bring those things together because of the social pressures that we have. You know, we live in a world where it's virtually impossible to be near all of the resources that we might use, that we're still going to be having things delivered to us or having to go out to get them because the land that's required to live regeneratively just isn't available. So as we look at that space between the two, what can we do to bring them in alignment with each other? And for me, that's been a large part of my personal transformation as I embrace permaculture and live in this way is trying to figure out the ways to bring those things together. And in doing so, by making decisions like buying from a farmer's market, avoiding buying new wherever possible, and making decisions as a consumer, it allows me to kind of withdraw from the consumptive marketplace and then begin to spend my dollars where they really matter and vote as a consumer with my spending power. And that's become more and more interesting to me because of listening to people like Karin Olson Ramanujan, who talks about a 30% solution, where if we start and get like 30% of people to start talking about these different things that are meaningful to us and the way that we're living, that we can really begin to shift the conversation. And Karin's numbers are kind of high compared to some others that I've heard, whereas like David Holmgren is saying now, through some of his work and a presentation that he gave at IPC in 2017, that it could be as little as 10 or 15% of people beginning to shift in this direction can have a huge impact on the decisions that are being made by corporations and business um, when it comes to things like sustainable energy, sustainable practices, single-use plastics, things like we're seeing from some manufacturers now with frustration-free packaging, which is, you know, just a simple cardboard box with which whatever it is that you're buying shoved into it. And that as we make these kinds of decisions in our personal life about what we will and won't stand for, that it has these effects then that ripple ever outward into our society. And there's, when it comes to that society side and our culture and community, there's something that David Holmgren said to me a number of years ago in one of my interviews with him was that it's not about trying to take the people who are not interested in these things and bring them into our fold, but getting those people who are already on the fence, who have these interests in sustainability or regenerative practices, and to show them that there's a way. And that for those of us who are already embedded in these ideas, yourself, myself, your listeners, mine, that by bringing in our friends and family, 
or when we go to an event and we're talking to some people who are interested in these ideas, maybe it's their first time at a permaculture convergence or a workshop on gardening. If we take those folks who have expressed this interest and bring them in, then they're the ones who will take the next step and bring their coworkers closer to these ideas. And all we really have to do in the end is continue to narrow that integrity gap and be models for other people who are interested in what it is that we're doing. I love how you mentioned the different decisions that we face as consumers having a big impact on the steps that we can take towards more regenerative lifestyle practices. Now, the flip side for that and the difficulty that I've you know, heard from others and certainly experienced myself is the concept of decision fatigue, especially when we're living in these cultures that the default mode is destructive and it's very hard to operate outside of the society and the infrastructure that you know we live in. It's very easy to get burned out by thinking, oh, okay, I might be making some, some good consumer decisions over here. I may be recycling, maybe composting some of my waste, but you know, just getting completely fatigued by how many decisions it, it requires in order to operate outside of a destructive system. Do you have any advice for people who are facing this type of decision fatigue and how they might be able to break it down into manageable steps that don't cause them to become apathetic and kind of give up on making any kind of progress? As someone who lives this way full time, I can completely understand that kind of fatigue because it can be exhausting. And I'd like to just address that from the front of this, that it happens. And there are some days where as we go through these processes that it may just be easier to buy that cheeseburger um, from the restaurant and move forward, even though you know that it's not necessarily a decision that you want to make. And it's something that Taj Shakluna, the perma pixie, talks about is that she would like us to in some ways talk about how we're in a period of transition and almost to think of that as one of the ethics that we might adopt when we're moving towards more regenerative practices because realizing that we're in that space allows us to forgive ourselves. And I think that that's one of those really important things that we can do as we do this is to know that we're not always going to be able to make the best decision. And that's okay because we're not in a place that we always can. But for those folks who are making these decisions and these choices, I feel that it's really important to pick what it is that you're going to do today, this week, or this month. And it's just to choose one or two simple practices that you can begin integrating into your life and focus on that. And maybe that means that you're going to begin purchasing more things secondhand and going used. And that can be as simple as using your thrift stores or your charity shops. And maybe some of them locally to you don't make the kinds of decisions that you would necessarily care for because of the political practices that they engage in, um, where they spend the money that they're collecting from you as a consumer, but that's okay because that's a different conversation. And I've thought about this sometimes that for many people, because of where they live in a rural environment, a place like Walmart may not be the only place that they really have to shop for many of these things. And it's the choice do they go to a store right next to them that they can go in and do their shopping at and support then the people in their community who work there versus ordering something online and having it shipped to them. And that's a personal decision that they have to make and it's okay to do some of that big box shopping if that's the space that you're in, even if you might not agree with their labor practices, because fighting against those labor practices is different from your day-to-day -day needs. Um, but 
those are kinds of big picture. What you were saying about the small and break it down with what I was saying about one or two practices. For me right now, it's like I was speaking with Paul Hellier of Fair Food Forager, and he and I are talking about how do we integrate a lot of these things into our life. And one of his big things is single-use plastic. And it reminded me of all of these water bottles that I've had over the years that are reusable, but I can't really clean them out. And so it was looking for a good solution for any environment that I'm in, whether I want one thing for coffee, one thing for water, juice, whatever. And so finally used that single-use plastic idea and wanting something reusable to find myself an appropriate container. And, you know, that may have taken me days to, to do and seemed much harder than it should have been at the front. But now that I've taken care of that, I now have something durable that fits that need. And now I can move on to my next project and my next idea of what I want to integrate into my life. And for me, that's reducing my fossil fuel needs, um, which, of course, is a very big picture. But that's my next fight now that I solved this reusable drink container in my life. And I think that everybody can do really well just to find a couple of those things, you know, looking at where do you live and can you combine shopping trips so that you're not making a lot of stops all the time? Or is there a route that you take to work that you might be able to change so you can run some errands on the way to or on the way home to reduce your fuel needs as well as perhaps the time that you're spending out so that then you free up more time for other projects. And just, yeah, using your creativity to do, to do this as you find one thing, establish a solution, and then kind of ship, I don't want to say shelve that, but inhabit that and live into that solution and then move on to the next problem you're facing. I think those are some great insights. And, you know, like you mentioned, this is going to be different for every person. And the factors are going to change depending on where they live, what their lifestyle is like, how many people they're supporting, and so on and so on. The variables are infinite. I know for myself that I've found a lot of progress being made a lot faster by kind of systematizing the amount of decisions, especially the small ones that I make on a daily basis. So, you know, there's tons of online resources on how to do this, but the way it's looked like for me mostly is just by putting in routines and having lists of things that I do fairly consistently every week. Obviously with a little bit of wiggle room, you don't want to be too rigid, but like always leaving the house with a couple of reusable bags so that you don't find yourself in a pinch at a store and have to use, you know, those single uses that they give you. I'm even getting down to the point where I'm considering uh, just doing a uniform so that I don't have to make the decision of like, what am I going to wear every day? Uh, do I need to, you know, buy other bids, our articles of clothing that come from either questionable sources or things or companies that I don't want to support, but really trying to get all of those kind of monotonous reoccurring decisions that contribute to fatigue because you're you're constantly making those small decisions again day in and day out once they become systematized and, and a bit more routine within a few months they quickly become your new default and once that mm -hmm. happens you free up a lot of mental space to either make larger decisions or to work on some of the weak points in your lifestyle that you try to improve on at least that's helped me out a lot Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've done a lot of that too. I remember when I was a kid, it was f funny, you know, you want toys and everything when you're young and you look forward to <clears throat> what's going to be unique or interesting that you might receive throughout the year. But 
as I got older, my grandmother would always kind of do like a resupply run for me for Christmas. And it was, you know, that joke of getting socks and underwear. But I actually kind of looked forward to that because that was something that took those kinds of things off the list of what I had to be concerned about. And I've kind of adopted that in my own life that when I need to replace, you know, articles of clothing as they wear out or other things like that, that it's become a process where it's like this once a year kind of thing. Those pieces that I can stock up on or anything like that become like an annual or biannual purchase. And then that's one thing that I don't have to worry about. And similarly, similarly to the routine, you know, it's one day a week where I'm doing laundry and taking care of all those things at once. I'd love to do some of the meal prep stuff that folks talk about, but I haven't quite got there. Um, but yeah, I find that those kinds of things and that uniform idea are very helpful for removing those minute decisions that we take and work through every day that kind of tick away at our ability to think. I joke sometimes with some with friends who are in the IT community in particular, that it's like we only have so many brain cycles a day before we kind of run out and get exhausted. So how can we maximize the number of those that we're able to use? And doing these kinds of things where we integrate these decisions into our lives give us more opportunity to take advantage of the time that we have available to us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you also have a pretty unique criteria for how you evaluate when it is you need new stuff uh, and when you're making purchases. Uh, you had a fantastic phrase, which we talked about last time, which is, I am too poor to buy cheap things. Could you elaborate on that and talk a little bit about that process that you go through when you're making consumer decisions? Right. Well, <laughs> that line, I don't know where it originally comes from, but it was Wilson Alvarez of Rebel Garden Tools, and he also teaches with Susquehanna Permaculture, and he's been a guest on my show a number of times, a great rewilder, um, and he shared that with me, and I like that idea because it pushes me towards looking for something that's the right value so that I'm spending the limited amount of resources that I do have because I live in the gift economy. And, you know, my work as a podcaster and a permaculture practitioner is all in this space where I'm not really, in most cases, charging anyone for anything. It's through um, just an exchange where I'm providing what it is that I do to others and then ask them to help me meet my needs. I just finished my taxes and it was, I was able to produce my show and live and do everything that I do on just over $12,000 gross. Um, for 2017. So when you're working with those kinds of resources in the United States where it's less than half of what an individual income is, then it requires you to make different decisions. And that's where this idea of being too poor to buy cheap things comes in. So it is about buying things that are known to be durable. Um, or if they're, and if they are known to be dur durable, then also being able to repair them or looking for things that are known to last a lifetime. And so those are the kinds of things that I look for. And then also am not unwilling to spend more money for something that may be substantially, in some cases, more expensive than something that I, I can just go readily acquire in order to have that piece that really is that right mix between the cost financially and also the lifetime in which that item or object will last. And so once I've kind of decided what the right value is for something, um, and you know, for clothing and things that tends to be 
much lower perhaps than a good garden tool where I'm would consider spending substantially more because this is something that will last a lifetime. Something that is likely to wear out within a couple of years just through regular use, regardless of the quality of the item, kind of changes the way that I might look at what that price point versus durability is. And the way that I consider a lot of these things when I'm looking for something is the first thing that I'll always do is a Google search. And I'll just hop online and it's usually like, something as simple as best cargo pants 2018 and I'll look for whatever list is available that gives me you know what certain brands are and read through what people have to say about these things and then f- look for something that is within the range of what I'm willing to spend and so maybe for a pair of pants that's, that might be 35 to 50 dollars um, because I can expect to get you know three to seven years depending on what I'm using them for and then that will point me towards particular brands you know in the United States Carhartt is very um, well known for its durability. Wrangler has a work line that is also known for being durable. And so, you know, between those kinds of things and that search will get me towards that quality and value and price point. I also like those kinds of articles because I don't want to spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what the right items are. And it's real easy when you want to make a good decision where trying to make the perfect decision becomes the enemy of being able to make that choice. And so doing that quick Google search, getting a list of just a couple of items really narrows down my focus. And so I'm not spending hour after hour kind of drilling down on this. And then once I kind of find what that right value is, um, I'll start looking for what I can find secondhand. You know, whether that's eBay or looking locally, running through my thrift stores, checking Craigslist, I always try to find something secondhand if it's going to be more than five or ten dollars in a quick stop on one of my regular errands. Once I kind of go through that, though, of value and quality versus secondhand, um, after that point, if I can't find it secondhand, then I'll consider buying wherever I can find it at that point. Because again, I don't have hours and hours and hours to try to find what it is that I'm looking for because not only am I trying to find something of the right value, I also value my time as well. And so trying to find something that is a low dollar figure item, which for me is really less than like $100, it's not worth spending more than about a half an hour, 45 minutes researching something. And so it's, you know, that quick online, find it. Next time I'm out with my kids, if we're going clothes shopping or something, swinging in, checking the secondhand store, take five or 10 minutes on Craigslist, scan through eBay real quick. And if I haven't found it by then, and I don't have a local store where I can buy it, then that's when I'm going to go ahead and make a consumer choice online. Nice. Yeah, that's a very useful criteria that I think a lot of people could realistically mimic and sort of tweak to their own needs and criteria and get some similar results. Now, we've talked a lot about what people can do for their own lifestyle changes, uh, their consumer habits and such, but I know that a huge part of living regeneratively and making that kind of transition is your interactions with the community and how you support both the local economy, the local ecology, and the connections in between your own lifestyle and the people that you live around. What are some of the tactics and the solutions that you found yourself in, you know, bringing these ethics and these ideas to the rest of your community and having them benefit more than just yourself? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's another big question. 
I love these, Oliver. Well, so my thing is, and and what we always try and push, at least through my company and, and what I try and promote, is a very holistic view of regenerative lifestyle mm-hmm. implementation. And obviously, if it's too uh, focused in your own lifestyle, in your own interior, you kind of start to lose the bigger picture. And one of the questions that I constantly get is like, how much land do you need to produce all your own food? Or like, you know, how much would it cost to be entirely self-sufficient? And I usually meet that question with the answer of like, I don't think that's what you really want, you know? Because when you cut off the interactions and a certain amount of the reliance on your community, you become a hermit, basically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you miss out on the efficiencies and uh, the joy of interaction with the larger community and, you know, your family, your friends, the local economy, and all of those connections that really make life enriching. So I don't know mm-hmm. if you've really thought about this, and it's fine if we can, uh, I'm more than happy to skip to another question or something, but uh, I'd love to get your insights on it if, if you could think of something. Yeah. Hearing that question is interesting for me because of how integrated so much of this has become because I've been doing it for so long. And it's been that a lot of my outreach and work within the community is through living this way and being a model to others. And I kind of keep returning to that idea because I don't think that everyone can do the same things that I do. And to ask them to is disingenuous in many regards because my life is what it is. There's only one Scott man, you know, and I have my uh, two young children and a U.S. Marine and all of these other things that I've gone through to kind of become the person who I am. And so by doing the best that I can and interacting with others, I feel gives the best way for other people to interact with this. You know, when people ask me about what it is that I'm doing to talk about, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I solve this issue about reducing my use of like straws and plastics, you know, understanding that there's a lot of things that I'm not going to be able to get away from, but in like my day-to-day life, what can I do? And inviting people in to be a part of my problem solving so that then they get engaged and are kind of drawn into this too and can begin to ask these kinds of questions. And it's interesting as I do these kinds of things to hear back from people, you know, and it may be years later that they finally decided to join a CSA and now they're getting their food locally. And we might have a conversation about whether or not they want to do a CSA share from a farm that's all organic, but they might have to drive twice as far to pick up their share from, or do they go to the local century farm that's been there you know, for four generations now, but their CSA drop is on their way home from work and kind of helping people to navigate these things or like some friends who are living in in an intentional community, spending time with them to talk about what it's like to build up in that kind of space, having visited other intentional communities and taking all these things that I care and love so much and turning it outward looking for ways that my friends and I can spend time together truly locally within our environments while still engaging in some of the interests that we have, like finding the local art house theater, which I don't know how I had missed living in central Pennsylvania for so long, but getting an invitation to a local film festival that was being held there and going and supporting local artists in that way. Um, Finding, again, because of trying to live within this very small financial footprint, these things that I 
I used to love so much individually and then inviting other people who I know who have these interests along and being able to deepen our relationships through these activities, again, within our local environment. And that I know that's kind of really relationship-based and it's not necessarily hard numbers, but I find that it's that relational engagement that allows us to have a bigger handprint as these ideas as I was kind of saying earlier, we kind of ripple out through those people who are around us. And as we show them that they can live a joyous and bountiful life by stepping away from some of these things, that it's not really a place of misery, that they can renounce and enjoy everything that it is that they're doing and that they've ever loved. It just takes a little bit of creativity to do so. And that by doing that in a non-judgmental way, and celebrating the choices and decisions that people make along the way really gets people engaged. You know, as we become cheerleaders for their life decisions that, you know, maybe they decided to downsize from an SUV to a minivan that gets them two or three more miles per gallon when they're commuting, yet still allows them to carry their family comfortably. And, you know, can we celebrate those choices? Or maybe they were somebody who always liked to get a new car every three years and they decided that maybe that's still a, a pattern that they like, but rather than getting something new, they want to get something new to them. And all of these changes that we make as individuals really do have an impact on everybody else around us. And yeah, I just, I love celebrating and helping other people express their passion in the world. And that, yeah, doing those kinds of things gets people really engaged and they take ownership for these choices. I really love that you mentioned that because, you know, in the different educational platforms and places that I visited while learning both natural building and permaculture, you know, I've met some absolutely fantastic people, but I've also met quite a few individuals who are very zealous about this being kind of an all or nothing uh, investment in your life where like you should be getting rid of unnecessary technology. I've even been to sites where people ask you to leave your cell phones in your car before they get on uh, to their farm worrying about, you know, the radiation and, you know, whether those things are valid or important or not, it does tend to ostracize people who are not yet ready to go all the way in um, and abandon the comforts that they're used to, the conveniences that have made their life easy but still want to make steps in the right direction. And I love that you said, you know, all of these, however small, choices and progressions are all moving in the right direction and deserve to be celebrated. I think that's a really great way to avoid getting burned out with the stresses and the anxiety that a lot of these environmental and geopolitical concepts tend to weigh on our day-to-day -day lives. And if you don't take the time to celebrate the even small bits of progress that you make, it's very easy to become burned out and, and somewhat apathetic. Um, so, so I really appreciate you bringing that up. And it's one of the things, like as I've worked through this, I've been to some sites that are like that. And I can appreciate what people are doing who ask us not to have technology around us. But like I said earlier, it's still this transitional period. And for those of us who are trying to be communicators and educators and be engaged, you know, if we're being invited somewhere that we've never been to before, you know, something, printing out your directions before you go, something as simple as a single road closure can keep you from getting there and having a high impact. And so there are these kinds of things where we just live in a particular society that requires certain choices. And it was one of the things my parenting partner and I, when our, 
when our shared children were born, we were making decisions about how we were going to raise them. And it was, okay, well, we're going to limit screen time. How much are we going to limit that? And how are we going to feed them? Is it okay for our children to have fast food? Is it okay for us to take our children to amusement parks? And it was this long list of values that we stepped through in order to decide just how to raise our children. And in doing so, we did decide that, okay, our children are going to eat fast food from time to time because that's a shared social point that so many of their fellow students have in their classroom. And so if that's the place where those children can connect because it's, you know, what was the last toy that you got, you know, in your (laughs) takeout meal or something like that, but then that allows them to become friends. And then my daughter is talking to one of her friends about us going and picking violets or my son talking about how we were foraging for raspberries because it's a conversation about food. That's more important to me in the long run than getting super hyper focused on making like the perfect decision all the time because that decision is really only my decision and doesn't necessarily help other people get to the point where they can integrate these ideas. And that's why I like these small and slow solutions to borrow one of the principles of permaculture is because if you can help somebody make that transition from, like I say, the SUV to the minivan, Well, then over time, they may start thinking then about the next time that it's not going to be a minivan. Maybe that's where they get, you know, one of the hybrid wagons that now doubles their fuel economy or even decides to live near a school so their children can walk. And it's, you know, as we get people to start thinking about these little things, it opens up their thoughts to these really big issues that are going on that they can have a real impact for. And I just, yeah, yeah, I see so many people get shut out or shut down because they they don't feel like they're good enough. And if we get to the point where other people don't feel like they can be empowered to be a part of this, then they're never going to feel invited in. And... I find that a lot of what happens within the hyper-competitive marketplace that we're in as employees, as business owners, with this idea of everything needing to be just in time and delivered right when it has to happen, that it shuts a lot of people out, that we no longer feel like we can ask to step into a space and instead feel more and more like we have to be invited in. And I feel that those of us who are making these choices now need to be inviting more people into our circles. Even if there's somebody who shows up, you know, to our all organic potluck with a two liter bottle of diet Coke, which we ourselves may not drink, that we should celebrate their presence there, not that they brought something in that we might not agree with. And that as we do more and more of this, we can be, like I say, talking and engaging and getting more of those folks who are on the fence or looking over it involved. Yeah, I really love that perspective. And and the emphasis on, on strengthening those connections, I think, is something that often gets lost sight of as people get entrenched in their particular dietary habits or their particular consumer habits and can end up ostracizing people who could potentially be incredible allies in this move towards a re- regenerative future. But you know, if those connections are lost, you're losing so much more than just, you know, an argument about what is ethically correct. But you're you're losing a ton of potential to 
uh, enforce and grow your community. So I, I love uh, I love you echoing that. Now let's switch gears for just a second because I'd love to talk about some of the insights that you've gained over now seven years of running this podcast. Um, you've spoken with some of the leaders and the innovators in the regenerative fields. And I would love to just get your perspective on what have been some of the insights and the innovations that have inspired you most in maybe the last one or two years and and have given you hope and excitement for where this is going and how it's growing. What I'm really excited and happy about with where all of this is headed towards, I think really begins with Toby Hemingway's The Permaculture City. And my conversation with him um, before he passed, uh, so this would probably be about two and a half years ago, three years ago, that I had that conversation with him that kind of started me in the direction where I've been headed. And it was interesting for me talking with Toby, both in the interview and the emails that we exchanged setting it up and then afterwards, and also the content of his book, because he was really like the first permaculture leader who I felt put something out there that said that we don't have to go back to the land. We don't have to be growing all of our own food. We don't need to be pushing ourselves further and further into these places that are actually requiring more and more resources to support us. That if we're down at the end of that country lane way far away, we might not have a cell phone or anything else, but what about all that copper in those lines that get to our house? What about all the gravel that's being spread across that lane every year as it gets rutted from rain and snow and erosion versus somebody who's living compactly in a city and isn't raising their own food but instead is trying to make the best ethical choices they can in that space because now they're living in a smaller space that requires less energy to support. And it's been through those kinds of things that made me step back even further away from some of the land-based practices that have been very common to permaculture conversations and the regenerative field for a long time and to begin looking at the decisions that we can make for where we are right now, whether that is in a rural setting, a peri-urban setting, an urban setting, wherever we find ourselves is where these decisions need to be made. And that as we start doing those things and making the decisions that are best for us in this space, the other piece that emerges from David Holmgren and from Ethan Hughes and, you know, to mention Carnals and Ramanujan again and some others, is that the work that we're doing ultimately is with the people who are in front of us. That if we're going to really create a regenerative world that is as inclusive as we can make it, that we have to be doing this right here, right now, every day in the moment. And so when we're with our family or with our friends, that if a question arises, being able to take the time to answer it. That if somebody we know is having a difficult time, that we make ourselves available to them, that we're present as much as possible. And it was, I don't remember who raised this idea to me, but that it's, you know, as much as we may want to go to the next festival, the next convergence, these big events that are really inspiring and can feed a lot of passion for us as we get to be around other people and their passion and also share our own that those things are great and it's good that we're doing it and that we're planning for them and we're attending them so that we can continue to network and have that face-to-face time. But that those large 
events and things where we're face to face to others that we need to also, like I say, pull that back and spend more face to face time with those people who are interested in these ideas who are already in our community to go to our township meetings when they're going to be making a decision about something to let our voices be known and to show that we're active and interested in these things. And then, you know, as we're in that space with friends and family, to help them work through the choices that they're making, to deepen those relationships, to strengthen our community, uh, one-on-one, face-to-face, and in ever larger groups. Marvelous. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up that book, Permaculture City by Tommy Hemingway. That's been one of the most inspiring volumes that I've read in the last couple of years. And like you touched on, the real takeaway that I got from that is that it flips on its head this idea that the only way of making regenerative lifestyle choices is to move back to the land and start producing as much of your own things as possible. Certainly, there's a lot of merit to that. But like you said, you know, the amount of resources consumed when you're that far removed are so much larger than when you live in a more close-knit community, which isn't at all to say that our cities are models of, you know, progress and sustainability or regeneration. But it also doesn't mean that you need to abandon your lifestyle because certainly there are advantages to, you know, the economic opportunities, the conveniences that, you know, towns and especially cities can present and that you can start to make positive changes and have an impact in those places without, you know, sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And I, I really hope that's one of the largest takeaways that anybody gets either from this podcast, from the courses that we do, from listening to your own resources, is that there's really no reason why you would have to wait to start moving and living within the ethics that you hold dear and that a major, you know, like single stop lifestyle shift is what is required. You know, all those small decisions like we were talking about earlier, every day is an opportunity for making a small shift in the right direction. And I think a lot of people find that empowering, especially after, you know, maybe interacting with some of the more extreme communities that promote this this abandonment of, of modern society and infrastructure. And it's a friend of mine who has pulled themselves away from society a great deal. Many of our conversations for a long time felt as if he was encouraging everyone to do that. And then it was only probably two or three years into talking about many of these ideas that he became very clear with me that we can't do that. There's no real way for us to escape society as much as we might want to pull away or you know, go back to the land and feel as if we're away from all of these things and becoming like, as you were mentioning earlier, kind of insular or like a hermit, um, that it may feel like we're doing that. But because of the world that we live in today, it's not really possible. I mean, even many of the back to the land movements that have occurred over the years, whether we're looking at the Anabaptists and the Amish or some of the more modern eco villages, none of them that I'm aware of are completely disconnected from the resources of our larger nation state and the global community. And so being aware of that, I think, allows us to make better decisions as we move forward because we are connected to all of these things. So how can we take the best advantage of all of those connections and all the resources that are available to us as we continue to move towards a more regenerative lifestyle and a model for others. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Now, Scott, before I let you go today, could you tell us more about how people can get in touch with you, uh, find your podcast and any other resources that you would like to promote here? Sure. One resource that I want to mention in regards to where permaculture and regenerative living is really going is I want to plug David Holmgren's Retro Suburbia, which was just recently released and is available through permacultureprinciples.com. I really think that anybody who is in this urban or suburban space and wants to live regeneratively should pick up a copy of that. I think it's like $70 in the United States, but it's like 600 pages of everything you can do. Um, where you are right now in the city, in the suburbs to make a really big difference. Um, and the other kind of final thought on that is that where each of us are each day, that we can live regeneratively and that we should be applying these ideas exactly to where we are and what we do. Not everybody needs to be going off into the world and being a teacher or a designer or a gardener or a farmer. Whether you're an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, a janitor, a stay-at-home parent, all of these things that we've talked about today, everything that you'll hear on your show, Oliver, on my show, these are all things that you can apply where you are and just do that and enjoy it. When it comes to my show, if people want to visit and dig into the archives, I've got over 450 interviews now with pretty much everybody in the permaculture and regenerative community that you might be able to think of if you have their book on your shelf. Uh, they probably appeared on my show at one point, and that's at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If folks want to get in touch, um, I always like to throw this stuff out there. My email address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you want to shoot me an email, you have any questions about anything that I've said today, and I always make myself directly available if you want to give me a call. That phone number is 717-827-6266. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. And let me just take the moment to say thank you for all of the resources that you've put out there so consistently over the years. Uh, your podcast has been such a major inspiration for this show that I'm doing now. And yeah, thank you again for taking the time today. I really hope we can stay in touch and continue to uh, work together and promote these amazing ideas and the incredible work that so many inspiring individuals are doing out there. Thank you for having me today, Oliver, and I look forward to that and all the other opportunities we can develop in the future. All right. Again, thanks for taking the time, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. 
Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.